Pure Media Presentation. Hello. John Clayton, how are you, sir? Hanging in there. How about you? Doing all right. Doing all right. Hello, world. My name is Ryan Lindsay, and this is my podcast, Self Quarantine, presented by Fusha Media. It's the podcast with frank and honest conversations about sports and life. From the sporting world to the real world dealing with a pandemic. The podcast that can be enjoyed from a social distance. Now, if you couldn't tell from the open of the show, we have the legendary NFL insider John Clayton, who for more than 20 years worked at ESPN. That's where I really got to know John and where he and I became good friends. Growing up in Seattle in the 1990s, John Clayton was a big deal and a source of pride for the area. One of the premier media personalities called this place Seattle home. I was a huge fan of John's, having loved watching him on ESPN and then hearing him locally on the legendary sports radio station KJR. Getting the opportunity to meet and work with, quote unquote, the professor was one of the biggest perks of working at ESPN. If you want to stay in touch with the show, follow us on social media, Twitter at SQuarantinePod, Instagram at SelfQuarantinePod. Then there's our company accounts on both platforms, which is at Fusha Media. Also, be on the lookout for those promotional videos and logos that the Fusha Media team will post about that week's episode to hopefully get you interested and listen. Remember, Fusha Media now has a YouTube channel. Check out all the video highlights from all our past episodes. Just search Fusha Media. If you like the show, please rate and review it at the app that you found us, just like Paul LV and Mav1120. And after that, please subscribe. The latest episode will be waiting for you when you get up Friday morning, so you can listen to it, head to work, and then start the weekend. Or you can save it and use it for a Saturday afternoon listen fest. While you're doing chores or mowing the lawn. Now to the big interview. John Clayton has been covering the NFL for over 40 years. Starting in Pittsburgh, covering his hometown Steelers while he was still in high school. Slacker. Hey, why don't you put some work in, Clayton? Next, it was Seattle to cover my Seahawks. Then the entire football world got to know John as one of the more recognizable figures on ESPN for over 20 years. He has 1.3 million Twitter followers to show that his popularity is still as strong as ever. The man never stops working. I'm telling you, he prides himself in taking like one or two days off a year vacation wise. It's insane. From 710 ESPN in Seattle to an NFL column in the Washington Post, to Sirius XM Radio, to covering sidelines occasionally for Westwood One, and finally, as the opposing sideline reporter during Seahawk games. Take a breath, Johnny. The man is an encyclopedia of football knowledge. He's one of the more genuine people that I've ever met. We started our conversation with the question that all NFL fans are asking. Will teams start training camp on time? I do, yeah, because 
Uh, and, and the thing is, actually, may start ahead of time. I think that you've seen oh. in the last week or so, they started mapping things out. Now, again, it's still going to be up to the Players Association to approve things. And you saw that they were not going to approve any kind of a mini camp or assemblage of any players in June. And that's probably the wise and smart thing, because, again, it's too soon. I mean, you notice that uh, in several places that opened up a little bit early in Texas and Florida and Arizona and in the Carolinas, they're, they're having massive hits with the pandemic and the, the virus. And so uh, it's wise not to assemble 90 players on a team at this stage. But I think the plan is now uh, that they're going to go ahead and they're going to have a staggered. They're not going to have the staggered start like they normally do, because uh, in the in the past, it would be 15 days before the, the first preseason game. OK, but it looks like they're going to only have two preseason games. There may not be a Hall of Fame game. And so now everybody reports, like, for example, Houston and Kansas City reports on the 25th of July, 47 days before that Thursday night opener. All the teams playing on that Sunday come in on the 28th. And then the four teams playing on Monday night will come in on the uh, 29th. So you've got, uh, you know, 28th to the 29th will be the reporting of training camp. But the one thing they are talking about and you hope they can get done is maybe allowing some of the younger players and the quarterbacks and that to come in and not the veteran quarterbacks, but the young quarterbacks mm-hmm. to come in uh, in the middle of July. You know, maybe July 7th, 15th, 18th, 19th, just to get everybody caught up because nobody's had any work this off season, And the young guys are so far behind of being on the field. Uh, the one thing we do know is that they're going to go ahead and uh, have a five-day, six-day ramping up period at the start of camp where you're not going to have any contact. You're just going to slowly get into it because you go back to 2011, what ends up happening is that with all that time off because of the lockout and no off-season program, everybody was coming in and getting soft tissue injuries, blowing out an Achilles, blowing out an ACL. And so they want to try to you know, get things started slowly before they had that kind of repeat of what happened in 2011. So is this going to be a good way to reduce those preseason games that everyone's been clamoring about the last couple of years going from uh, four to two? Do you see that going long term? I do. Yeah. No, because you know, think about this. Now, we, we don't know what's going to be the capacity of what's going to be allowed in the stands. Right. We don't know if it's 25 percent, zero percent or 50 percent. So there's going to be lost revenue. And if it's zero percent, that's five point five billion of uh, lost revenue for the National Football League. And it puts the uh, players in a tough spot because the cap may go down. And so now what you can figure is that, okay, so you lose two weeks in that amount of money for the uh, preseason games, but it's not as much as you would in the regular season, and you're not losing the TV money that's going to be as big in the regular season. But the reason I think it could be two in the future is that what you can see is that they're going to need to make up some of the revenue just Mm -hmm. so they can keep the cap level or not going down too much. So you start the 17-game season next year. Now, the players get 48 and a half percent as opposed to 48 percent if you get to 17 games but if you get to 17 games you may have a chance to to make up about a billion or maybe a billion oh, two billion three <laughs> and get you a chance to uh, not lose as much and kind of keep the cap as level as possible so i think what happens now is that you know you go with the 17 game schedule next year you have the two preseason games and then you try to you know, monitor how you go through the training camps have you heard of what kind of precautionary COVID measures that the league is, uh, is looking to have? 
Yeah, well, they put out, in fact, a week ago Sunday, they put out a nine-page protocol list that basically you know, went through everything. And, you know, John Harbaugh, the Baltimore Ravens, read it and basically says, this is, this is not good enough. It's like a, it's, an, it's horribly impossible to be able to, uh, to go through this with even what the protocol is there. And so there's going to be more work that's going to be needed. But uh, you know that they have to set up locker rooms. So that there's going to be the six foot social uh, distancing. Yeah, so that's going to be that's there. Crazy. Then, you know, like he even brings up, which I think was a very poor point. What, what do you do as far as showers? Because you got, at least in the preseason, 90 guys trying to, uh, you know, get showers after a game. Uh, or, you know, do you send like three into the showers or how do you do that? Uh, you know that, uh, you know, from the media standpoint, it's not going to be good because, you know, the media is not going to be allowed in the locker room all season. You know, you, at training camp, you're not going to have fans. You're not going to have reporters there. And there's going to probably be a pool reporter that will be at every team just to report on what's going on. And so that's going to be there. And then, of course, uh, you know, you have you have to figure out exactly what happens if you get a positive test, who gets quarantined, who doesn't get quarantined. So there's a lot of things that they're still working on. But they put out the nine-page protocol that came out. I mean, if, for example, Pete Carroll read it and thought the immediate thing is at training camp, most of his meetings with players are going to be outside because there's more room. You notice it's easier. Uh, you don't have you have less chance of getting everything passed on if you're outside as opposed to inside. So that's going to be some of the things that they'll be doing. How big of a deal is it that Commissioner Roger Goodell admitted that they made a mistake in the way they handled the players kneeling for the national anthem? Well, I think it's it's a huge thing, but the thing is, you know, it still can't just be words. There's now going to be more actions. And so mm-hmm. I thought the biggest thing that Roger did was say that what they did was wrong, and now they're listening. The NFL is listening. Now, the thing is, listening and trying to get something done together, that's yeah. two different things. So now they've got to follow up on it. And so what I think needs to happen is that, you know, you, you get together with some of the top players, the top people that are involved in this and the owners and the league and all that stuff. And you start to try to work out, okay, what is the best way to uh, you know show Black Lives Matters? And so if it's a way to do it, I think outside of the kneel down, <clears throat> I think you can do it with videos right before the game. You can do it with, uh, you know, some announcements and things like that. Now, again, you know, what you wonder about is that if there's no fans in the stands, you know, the uh, you know, kneeling down is not going to do enough. But I think what the league needs to do is work with the players and come up with a paired solution to say, OK, here's the best way that we can take this and you know, make sure that more people can do it. I think they made a decent start by coming up with social media money on the cause. I think that uh, you can see that owners are going to contribute and all those different things. But what needs to happen is that both the owners, Roger Goodell, the National Football League, the coaches and that, they're all on the same page and find a satisfactory good way to try to make sure that uh, this word gets out and it gets out in 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 a way that they can make an impact. What's more likely, the league publicly apologizing to Colin Kaepernick or Kaepernick being on an NFL team again? Well, the, the question I don't know because not being a lawyer is that uh, they may not be allowed to do that because of the settlement of the case. Oh, yeah. You know, that's mm-hmm. because, again, remember, you know, Colin Kaepernick yeah. got a su- significant amount of money in that settlement. And uh, there may be some clause in there that says that, uh, no, you can't mention Colin Kaepernick in any way. 
Now, if there is a way, then fine. You know, uh, it'd be great if the, they can find another way to do a satisfactory job of getting Colin Kaepernick workouts for NFL teams. You know, it didn't work out well last year, and he was part responsible for that because, you know, when he went there, it seemed like he wanted to do too much. He wanted the media in there, and he wanted the, uh, you know, a shoot a commercial as the workout was going on. And then finally he moves the uh, thing away from the Atlanta Falcon facility over to the uh, high school. Yeah. And, you know, most of the two dozen people didn't even go to that because it just happened on that day. So I think that scheduling some kind of a workout that he's agreeable to and you can come to the same page because one of the things that he and his agent and everybody did not like was how they kind of threw it together and didn't have his and as more of a voice. But then he took too much of a voice by trying to shoot a commercial around it and everything else. But I think now they, you know, you see if there's a way to get it back in, but the fact that they're not mentioning it, that could be something that's legal. Do you see this uh, black lives matter? Do you see it dividing locker rooms? Like it seemed to do a couple years ago when uh, players were kneeling and you had Steelers that didn't come out, you know, and you had Trump talking about son of a bitches and stuff like that. Do you see this year that the locker rooms being divided as much as they were back then? No, I think that uh, this this should try to get everybody pretty much on the same page. And that's where they have to have the actions and they have to talk through it because, uh, you know, with 70% of the league being black, it's like uh, if it doesn't go well and there's going to be ramifications, I mean, you know, the whites in the locker room are the minority. Yeah. And again, you know, they need to do it. Now, again, what has to happen is you can't make misstatements. You can't do what Drew Brees did and, you know, bring up something that was four years in the past, particularly at a time like this, when there's so much rioting and there's so much protest. And there's also so many you know good black players that are saying, you know, excellent uh, commentaries on all this. And of course, you're seeing now in the country how realistic this is with some of the racism that's involved. And so it's like, I think that, uh, you know, this, I think, has a chance to go together. And that's why I think it's so important that, uh, you know, the NFL be the leader uh, along with some of the top players and figuring out, okay, what's the right way to get everybody on the same page? And I think they can do that. Based on what you know, how is the NFL going to handle? President Trump going after them and trying to fire up his base, who are a lot are football fans as we get closer to that November election. Yeah, I think they just stay out of it because uh, even though you have you know significant number of owners that contributed to his uh, cause, it's like uh, you 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 don't want to get too involved in that because again, it's like it's too controversial right. But sometimes now. he just and, jumps in and he makes he makes it an issue. It seems like just like he did a couple of years ago with the whole kneeling and calling the players. I mean that was all that was all him, and then they had to kind of mm-hmm. react to him. Yeah. Well, the one thing we know, you can't control him. Yes, that's just true. I mean, I mean you're, 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 you're talking about a president you know, on George on, on George Floyd that uh, says when uh, they had a good day on the, on the stock markets and all that, it's like, George is up there looking from heaven and smiling down on this. It's like, no, he died with somebody kneeling on his, his neck. neck. Yes. It's like, I don't think he's going to be smiling. But, uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, the only, the only thing is, is that, uh, you know, I think, uh, and, and the players, I think, will work on this more than the NFL, and the NFL should probably just stay out of it. But yeah. the, you know, the players just need to make sure they get the point is, hey, make sure that you vote in November. Yes. I mean, you can make the cho- a choice of what yeah. you want to do, but you vote in November. 
And uh, I mean, uh, what I think some of the most recent polls say that uh, you know, 90 percent of the black vote is not going to be going for uh, Donald Trump. But what you have to do is like if that's going to be the case and that's going to be what uh, more was like, make sure that everybody votes and also continue to try to uh, go. What we know in the state of Washington is that, hey, the uh, the ballot, you don't have to go to a ballot box. I mean, you can go and ma- have mail in. Uh, mail your uh, vote in. It's the simplest. It's the safest. I mean, you don't have the disaster of Atlanta where people were waiting eight oh hours because of faulty computers. You save money, which, of course, is going to be essential because now all you have to do is put a stamp on it. And so it's like uh, I think that's the one thing that would make it easier, but certainly more than anything else, make it safer and have more people vote. I completely agree. You talked to a lot of players. A lot of them are African American, I assume. Just like you know, you're, um, you've talked before and uh, about your friendship with Richard Sherman. Have you talked to any uh, African American players the last two weeks? And what what's kind of been the consensus? How, how has that uh, been going with, uh, with speaking with no, them about I, this issue? I unfortunately issue? have not. I mean, oh. you know, being basically locked up here in the house. Oh, that's so, true. <laughs> you know, not getting a chance, and I haven't been on any of the interviews. Okay. No, not too many of the interviews on Zoom. Okay. So I have not. But again, I, I grew up in the uh, worst ghetto in the state of Pennsylvania. And so, you know, in Braddock, PA. And so I, I know what I went through. And the one thing I learned from that, never, never even think that you know what the black people are going through, because I know what I went through and it was rough. And again, I know what they can go through some, seeing some of the things and talking to them. Mm-hmm. But that's where I'm so fortunate, because growing up in a ghetto like I did. I can immediately identify, you know, they, they, you almost, it's almost like a sense, like uh, they can sense like, oh, yeah, wait a second. You did kind of grow up in a ghetto. And, you know, I, they so I mean, it's easy for me to converse because, again, you know, I was the minority and the people were so good to me uh, in when I was up in, in Braddock that uh, you know, I'm so appreciative. I mean, it helped form you know, the way that I, I deal with people, how much I respect everybody, how, how I never look down to any any other anybody. And so uh, that was fortunate for me. But, uh, yeah, I mean, and what I, I think that uh, is so educational right now, it's sad because too many people are getting hurt, is that we're seeing thanks to cell phones, oh, uh, yeah. some of the real things that are going on that have been going on for years and it needs to change. Completely agree. So you talked about Braddock. You talked about growing up where you grew up. Where did your love for football come from? My mother. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it was obviously inherent. But my mom, who was a registered nurse, actually a nurse, uh, nursing supervisor in the operating room at the VA hospital in Pittsburgh, she was a big uh, Steeler fan. And so she would take me uh, when I was seven or eight years old down to the Steeler games. And so, uh, in fact, she would always pay full price for the tickets. And you know, everybody in the stands next to her is like, why do you bring this bratty little kid down? You're always going to do a sit here and want to eat. And so it's like, no, I wanted to, I wanted to watch football with my mom. And like, for example, you know, I was showing you my age here. Uh, I, I still remember being at Pitt Stadium and uh, watching the game between the Steelers and the New York Giants when Y.A. Tittle was uh, kneeling down in the back of the end zone with his you know, aging body and his head bleeding and all those different things. But the great part was we would go, we would go to the games. I didn't eat anything because I was more interested in watching the games and learning football and all that stuff. And then she always kind of pushed me because I always wanted to do radio, but she always pushed me to try to write. And so I started writing in junior high. 
uh, you know, started, you know, started doing some announcing and things of that nature all through high school to a point where in my senior year of high school, I ended up getting a press pass to go to the Steeler games and then, uh, you know, work doing like two to three stories a week for the St. Mary's Daily Press in the middle of the state of Pennsylvania. And after that, I went to Duquesne after, you know, turning out a, a small scholarship offer to Syracuse because I ended up getting so many jobs in media, 25 jobs through college wow. covering sports. And so uh, my love for football started with my mom. And so I know when I got inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame with the McCann Award, the big thing I said is that, uh, hey, mom, I'm glad you paid full price for the tickets. Thank you. And tell the other people to shut up. <laughs> Uh, talk about how big the Steelers were in Western PA in the 1970s. I mean, it was huge because, I mean, here, you know, and the timing of it was sensational because, you know, at that time, you know, Pittsburgh had the booming steel industry and, you know, they had you know, so many workers and you know, so many union people that, uh, you know, all kind of rallied around each other. But, you know, really until... Chuck Knoll took over in 1969. They were terrible. I mean, they were, you know, they they were as bad as any team that you can ever imagine. They were constantly losing. So now all of a sudden they get Chuck Knoll, they get Joe Green, they get Terry Bradshaw. And then all of a sudden they start building things up and they became the identity of, of that steel town. Now, because what ends up happening is that uh, it, you start getting into the mid seventies. What happens is, you know, the people, are, the, the, the steel mills are shutting down. People were starting to move out of town because they couldn't find work. It turned and it turned into you know an area. But the Steelers, because they had such the good work ethic, they had Art Rooney as the owner. I mean, everybody loved the Steelers, and they became you know one of the greatest dynasties in the history of the NFL, winning four Super Bowls in six years and putting together a steel curtain defense. That uh, you know, I, as much as we can talk about the 1985 Chicago Bear defense and maybe the the Ravens and the 2000 and all that stuff. I mean. That Steelers defense in 1976 was the greatest defense I've ever seen. You know, they get off to like a one and four start. They lose Terry Bradshaw. They got Mike Krusick at quarterback. And then all of a sudden they, they go through a spurt where they had some of the greatest numbers as far as shutting people out. I mean, they, it wasn't like they would let you not score. They, they wouldn't even let you get a first down. They were that good. <laughs> and so what happens is, you know, they go to Baltimore and they always hated Burt Jones. So they go to Baltimore. They hate. They just hated him. It's like you know they would never talk too bad about any any player except Burt Jones. And so they're beating him like forty two to fourteen. And so the Colts come back in the second half and they knock out uh, injuries of Rocky Blyer and Franco Harris. So then the Steelers have to then go to the Raiders in Oakland and play them for a championship game with Booby Harrison as the starting running back. And so they ended up losing even though they had the great defense. and uh, But, again, that was the greatest defensive stretch of football I've ever seen. But, uh, you know, that's how good they were. But, you know, what they really carved out the, the way this town was because it was a hardworking town. It cared, and the players cared about the area, all those different things. I mean, it was the perfect match. Who was your favorite Steeler to cover? Mm, Terry Bradshaw. Yeah. I mean, two, my two favorite players were Bradshaw and uh, Brett Favre, and uh, you know Bradshaw was just the absolute best because, I mean, you know he was he was always open and honest, and uh, you know you never knew what was going to come out of his mouth, and so uh, you'd have so many strange interviews. I still remember uh, I was at a Denver playoff game, and 
Uh, I got up, I couldn't fall asleep that night. So I get up like at five in the morning to go down six o'clock and get some coffee. And there's Terry down there. And it's like, Terry, what are you doing up? Ah, I can't sleep at night before games. You know, all that stuff. I just, it hogged me to sleep again. It's like, but I'll tell you what, he says, I was watching the movies last night and they had this movie, uh, this movie, the Exodus two, Ex- you know, Exorcist two, yeah. which of course was a scary movie and all that. So they had all these bugs flying in there. So I try to lay down. All I'm seeing all these bugs flying around. It's like, <laughs> it drove me crazy. So I had to come down here, and get some coffee. <laughs> That's a pretty good Terry Bradshaw impression. <laughs> Uh, so in 86, the man from Western PA moves 2,500 miles to Seattle. Why? Well, what happened was, uh, you know, I had had so many uh, offers. You know, I had offers from the uh, Philadelphia newspapers, Boston newspapers uh, to go. But it's like, you know, you figure I'm a Pittsburgh guy. I don't move. And so, uh, you know, they're starting to change my role a little bit at the Pittsburgh Press because, you know, obviously I was I was a Steeler guy mm-hmm. and uh, they wanted me to do more national stuff. And they were going to put somebody else in the Steeler beat. And see, I was also one of the investigative reporters on the paper, too. So right around that time, the uh, they had this, uh, you know, the pirate, you know, the pirate, drug, the, 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 I guess you call it the baseball drug scandal. Oh yeah. And so because, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So being, the being the investigator. With his, yeah. With the pirates. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Cause remember like the pirate parrot was, you know, dealing cocaine and <laughs> they had all these players in the league that uh, yeah. were dealing drugs. Yeah. So, but, and so I had, uh, as an investigative reporter, I broke about uh, three or four race fixing stories, either at a dog track a horse track or whatever. And so, and to do that, you have to get to know the FBI. And so, like, the uh, FBI guy calls me. He says, hey, let's have lunch. It's like, okay, fine. And so I go in, and we're having lunch. And he says, hey, so uh, you're going to get involved in this uh, this baseball drug story? It's like, sure. He's like, well, we'll help you. But here's the deal. We'll help you, but you can't do a team. It's just got to be you. So I go back to the paper, and I say, okay, uh, here's what I can do, and here's what I can get. And they said, because oh, they put a team together. So that killed me. As far as uh, you know, getting the the FBI help because I, I would have won a Pulitzer Prize wow. because I know that, like for example, the New York Times came in and just took some of the trial stuff and they finished like third in the Pulitzers. But I would have the direct information from FBI people on this, and then I was Jeez. getting you know good stuff from some of the areas that they were you know doing all these deals and all that stuff. So I figure, you know what, maybe my time here in Pittsburgh starting to wane with some of the management and that. And so uh, Tacoma and, you know, Bart Wright, who was you know, covering the Seahawks, and I would always call him up every time I had uh, different news and said, hey, he, you got this story, and I give him that story. So he calls me up and he says, hey, McClatchy's buying the uh, News Tribune, and uh, I'm going to become a columnist. I think, you know, you, you should see if you can put in to get this. So I fly out, and they basically say, okay, fine. Uh, we want you to be the Steeler. We want to be the Seahawk guy, and also cover the league. We'll pay you more money than anybody else in the market. Uh, we'll give you more travel. You can do all the league stuff. And uh, I said, great, okay. So I took the job, and then uh, within a month, I get fired. And the reason I got fired, it was an asset sale. And so what happens on an asset sale is that they have to let everybody go, and then have them interview you to come back. And so out of that, I came back for the interview, got rehired again, and they gave me a 2% raise for the inconvenience that I went through. I didn't even know that. Wow, that's crazy. Mm-hmm. So speaking of stories, I know this story, but explain why you and other Seahawk beat reporters sent a 
fruit basket to Cardinals fullback Ron Wolfley? Well, what happened was that, uh, you know, Brian Bosworth was one of the more unique athletes you can ever cover. <laughs> now, he was, you know, because, again, he was all show, right? And, again, his agent, the Lake Erie was shard, I was very tight with. And so, you know, he gave me the story about, you know, how Boz was there as a sophomore in college and they were getting all the figure out, you know, get the Boz stuff going and, you know, build up all that reputation. And so, uh, you know, the Boz came in and, uh, you know, did what he did. And of course, I mean, a real interesting talent because again, he had all the speed, you know, he had like four or five speed in the 40. Uh, he was, you know, his tackling was a little different because again, he just, he wanted to just run through you. But, uh, once we had the uh, Bo Jackson run, right over him and then Bo Jackson continued his way into uh you know heading into the locker room uh it's like well, I was like well that's one of the more incredible plays that I've had but you know the one thing with the boss he was always news and uh, he was okay with me except when I wanted to get a one-on-one interview because he'll come over and say hey John what's going on tell me what's happened and so okay so I tell him all the news that's going on in the league and they say hey can I ask you a question no only in press conference form and so what happened was when Ron Wolfley on on a, on a play you know, took him out and it pretty well ended his career. We wanted to reward Ron for uh, <laughs> ending our pain as far as trying to deal with him. I mean, cause I, I still remember uh, he he was uh, on the Friday before his first game, and you know the first game it was in Denver. Okay, and remember he was the one the boss that was taking all the uh, you know the John Elway. Uh, he had two different shirts, one bashing Elway, one supporting Elway and all those different things. And he was making money off of that. And the, but of course, the Friday before his first game, you know, the big story was, how is he going to do his hair? Because I got the word from Gary. It's like, OK, he's going to do a haircut. And so when I was chasing him down to try to get the word on the haircut, then he got mad at me for that. And it's like, oh, boy, this is just ridiculous. <laughs> so, so he was more more trouble than he was worth, basically. Yes, pretty much. As a Seahawks fan growing up in the Northwest in the 1980s, like a lot of kids my age, I idolized the great Steve Largent. Do you have a good Steve Largent story? I just how was was such a good person he is. Uh, I mean, you know, the one thing it was just amazing to think that uh, here's a guy that the Houston Oilers gave up on before his rookie year, sent him in a trade to uh, Pittsburgh. I mean, to Seattle, and then you know, you look at it. My favorite story, I guess, was you know, remember Lester Hayes? Yes. Okay, so Les Lester was one of the most powerful, and he has speech impediment. Yeah. Okay, so like for example, I mean again, one of the great cornerbacks. You know, he always was a little fat and all that stuff, but I mean, he played so low to the ground, and he was so good. And so it's like uh, I still remember going to Steve, uh, to, to him and saying, "Hey, Lester, tell me about Steve Largent." So he'll go, "I say it like I 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 say it's like Gumby angles. Yeah, you watch him. He's like Gumby. I say it like I say it like I say it like I say Because he always kind of put some extra words and all that stuff. Yeah. And so what he was always talking about was the way that he cut. And it was like how his ankles were like it, it would almost melt when he would make a wow. move. And so uh, and you watch it sure enough where it is. And you know, he, he left when he retired from the NFL. I mean, he had more catches than anybody else in NFL history at that time. He was such a great guy was a great politician, a great person, all those different things. He lived up to everything that you would have as a Hall of Famer. How'd you become an NFL insider with ESPN? Well, what happened was um, 
it started as a part-time gig when I was at the News Tribune. And again, this shows you how good the News Tribune was to me, uh, is that, uh, you know, Chris Mortensen was uh, being interviewed and was thinking about taking a job in, with the Jacksonville Jaguars. And he would have been like the first person to kind of go into the multi-role of working PR, working in scouting, and putting together videos, right? Because that, that wasn't done at the time. Yeah. And so they had made him the offer, and so they started an, an audition uh, for people to come in to possibly replace him. Now, Chris and I go back so far that, uh, you know, when he was covering the Falcons for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, we would always compare notes. I'd, if I heard something on the Falcons, I'd call him. He'd call me. And so at one point when he was going to get off the beat and ironically get on to become an investigative reporter for the for the paper. And, of course, I, I know because that was another story that we were working on together because there was all kind of you know basketball things that were going on, at the, you know, basketball and football things. And so he says, hey, why don't you come down here? and uh, cover the Falcons. Well, I had just then started to move to Seattle, and I was starting to get some things going here, and so I turned that down. Then uh, Chris ended up going to uh, another publication that ended up eventually getting out of business. Uh, and a score, I think it was Score. The, uh, uh, Frank uh, the Ford had this one paper. In, oh, the National, was wasn't it? 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 The, was that? Yeah, it wasn't the National or something like that? Yeah, it was the National. You're yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Yeah, so he wanted me to come with him, and that did intrigue me, and I almost did it. But then, unfortunately, the paper folded. Yeah, All right, so then when he was uh, you know, thinking about taking Jacksonville, he put my name in. Mel Kuyper put my name in. Uh, Andrea Kramer put my name in. And so I ended up going back and uh, you know, doing an audition. And so they came out of it, and they said, okay, so here's the deal. We want you to work part-time. We're going to start this show uh, on NFL on ESPN two, you know, which is basically it was NFL Live. We want you to be the uh, insider, not on the air, but writing it, and then we're going to give you a radio contract. So I got that, and then within a year, the opportunity was created that I could then uh, you know start doing. Uh, inside the huddle notes. And so I started doing my TV stuff. And so uh, really, you know, thanks to Chris, it got me in and then had 22 years at ESPN. I used to love those inside the huddles. Um, I'd come home from come home from school or after between classes and at three o'clock sports center uh, Pacific time, I'd always hear inside the huddle with John Clayton. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was awesome. There's been 20 years worth of this is sports center commercials. And, but most people uh, will say that you're one with Slayer the Slayer one was top five all time. How did that mm-hmm. come about? Well, apparently the ad agency wanted to do that for two years. And so uh, they, uh, and of course what happens is there, there's enough leaks there that you can kind of find out what some of these scripts are and everybody's angling for it and everything else. But the ad agency was insistent that it would be me and me only. And so, once they ran it past me, and in fact, it was one of the people who used to be the uh, on my on the uh, three o'clock West Coast Sports Center, six o'clock Eastern, yeah. uh, one of the, uh, the, the directors, uh, and he was now in charge of all this. You know, he calls me up and he says, "Hey, I got to send you a script here. Would you be willing to do this?" And so I say, "Yes, absolutely." And so uh, we we go down to L.A. And they were shooting about four commercials. I know they had a Phil Mickelson commercial that they were shooting and all that stuff. And so we had a uh, – and it's like it's funny because it, it was a uh, 
a film studio. It was under a bridge. And it's like, let's, let's go to the, uh, and, and it looked like a place that you know, you'd be buying crack cocaine on the outside <laughs> because it was under a bridge with a big <laughs> cement white building and uh-huh. all that stuff. And you know, there were 65 people there to shoot the commercial, including two hairdressers for somebody who doesn't have much hair. And of course, you know, part of that was, you know, Dan Patrick used to say after he left ESPN, he said, you should check out John Clayton because he's got the uh, the ponytail. And so if you see him in the airport, uh, you know, check out his ponytail. And so I was always being asked about the ponytail. So they incorporated that into the commercial because Dan and I had such a good relationship, yeah. which we did. And then uh, we, we take the commercial and we uh, we do it. And then, you know, we did 22 takes. But after the 10th take, they knew we were there. It was done. And so we did 12 uh, outtakes, just, you know, off impromptu stuff that they turned into, uh, you can see it on YouTube, is like the outtakes. And so, you know, with the 22 takes. And afterwards, they uh, they said, well, we felt that this was going to be the best sports center commercial, and we think it even turned out better. So what they ended up doing, ESPN, was holding a contest in August where people would be voting on the best sports center commercials. And so stupid me with 1.5 million followers at the time, I didn't promote it. And uh, Jay-Z, who was representing Robinson Cano, uh, had his commercial where he went through the entire building and, uh, you know, got everybody sick. Yeah. But uh, that ended up winning because he, you know, Jay-Z had 3 million followers at the time. And so finishing second, I was I didn't care. I was <laughs> I'm so happy with the commercial. But I think that uh, it did turn out to be the best commercial they've ever done. Well, finishing second to Jay-Z, that's nothing to laugh at. So mm-hmm. I, mean, I think you're all right finishing uh, second to Jay-Z. The yeah, only re- only regret is I never got a chance to talk to Jay-Z or Robinson when uh, Robinson Cano was here in Seattle. Oh, really? Oh, geez. Never uh, did, no. Oh. So with all this national exposure that uh, has made you famous, uh, I can attest uh, firsthand any time that uh, we've ever tried going out to dinner or coffee, People will always come up and ask you questions about their team, and and uh, and it's been it's always great because you're so great with with people, and and like you said before, you treat other you treat everybody with with respect, which is great. Who's that person? Who's that famous person that has come up to you and and talked about how big a fan they were? Who's who's the who's somebody that you're like, wow, I can't believe that person, uh, uh, you know, watches me. Evander, the real deal, Hollyfield. Oh, really? Yeah. So I'm down in Atlanta at the uh, airport Marriott. And uh, his, one of his handlers came over to me and says, you're John Clayton, right? Because, yeah, somebody wants to meet you and say some good things about you. And so they bring me over, and it was the real deal, Vander <laughs> Hollyfield, you know, <laughs> saying good things about it. And, of course, uh, my, my, my good friend and the longtime colleague Mike Sando was standing there looking at this whole scene where Evander Hollyfield uh, has his handler come over to me, and he comes over and uh, <laughs> says all these good things and all that stuff. That's pretty cool. That's really cool. The real deal. Yes. All right. So a couple more questions, and I'll let you go. Uh, let's go some current and back to some current NFL. Will Tom Brady get the Tampa Bay Buccaneers to the Super Bowl? No, I don't think so because it's a good team, but it's not a great team. I mean, when you think about this, is that he would put them at a level right now to challenge for a wild card. But the New Orleans Saints have 15 Pro Bowl guys, guys that have been to the Pro Bowl on that team. And, uh, you know, Tampa Bay has a good rush defense. They still have some questions in the secondary. I mean, he'll help the offense out a lot because 
You know, he ends up with the best wide receiver tandem in football, Chris Godwin and Mike Evans. He's got now you know, three talented tight ends, including my high school guy, Rob Gronkowski, who went to my high yeah, school. Yeah, Braddock. Uh, yeah. No he, no, he went to Woodland Hills. Okay. All right. All right. Which, which is now, you know, Braddock is now part of that. Okay. Like, he went to Woodland Hills. Uh, it was Churchill back when I was there. And so uh, so offensively, they'll be good. But I still kind of wonder, because, again, I just think the most complete team is the New Orleans Saints. So I think that the Tampa, you know, be a, like a 9-10 win wild card team. Because here's where the difference is for Tom Brady. And I think it's now pretty well accepted that, uh, you know, he loses his fastball a little bit, just like Drew Brees does in the second half of the season. But he's still going to be good because he's got such – I mean, he he has never had as much talent on the offense as he has right now. So that will make him so good. But what happens is he's in the NFC. In the NFC, you have 12 quarterbacks that are making $21 million a year or more. Eleven of those quarterbacks have been to the Pro Bowl except one, Jimmy Garoppolo, who actually was in the Super Bowl last year. <laughs> yeah. And so now the competition is going to be so much tougher to win games. You know, when week in and week out, you're going against a Pro Bowl caliber quarterback, and he's never really had as many as he has right now. Maybe you can say that in the early 2000s, you know, when you had Roethlisberger and you had, you know, uh, all these AFC quarterbacks that were so good. Well, he's had to take an advantage of the fact that he's taking on so many young quarterbacks, particularly in the NFC, AFC East, that either weren't good, too young, or he was going to beat. That's not going to be as easy now for that to happen with him moving into the NFC. Is the NFC West the toughest division in football? Yes. Yeah, because when you, when you think about the fact that a team that went to the Super Bowl two years ago might be the weakest team in the division with Seriously. all the losses that they have. On defense, you know, no Todd Gurley, you know, no uh, Brandon Cooks. That uh, you know, and, you know, J- Jared Goff needs a lot of talent around him to, to be a playoff team. But still, they're a seven-eight win team, if not more. And then you got Arizona as the most improved team in football because Kyler Murray is going to be that much better, and they're going to be a little bit better on defense. And then you look at San Francisco, you know, arguably, you know, right behind. New Orleans, although I think that uh, San Francisco goes from a 13-win team to 11, and you know if uh, Seattle gets better on defense, that they could be an 11-win team. So it's like uh, that. That to me is the best division in football. Have my Seahawks solved their pass rush and secondary problems this offseason? Solved it? No. Secondary problem they've solved as long as they do get uh, Quentin Dunbar. Yeah. You know, out not being in jail because you know Pro Football Focus had him as the second-best cornerback in the league. And maybe that's an overstatement, but still, he's really good. And so now you'd have a pro bowler in Shaquille Griffin, uh, a, a possible pro bowler in Quentin, uh, in Quentin Dunbar. Then you have Trey Flowers, who is really talented. You know, you got uh, two uh, pro bowl alternates in Bradley McDougal at safety, along with Quandre Diggs. Secondary's fine. Uh, it's, and, uh, if they can get uh, Genevieve Clowney back, which is still an outside chance, then they may pass San Francisco as being the most talented team in the division. But even without him, you know, you, you look at what's gone on on their defensive line. Okay, so you look at last year. They didn't have Jaron Reed for six games. They really didn't have Ziggy Ansah. 
Ziggy no, Ansah did no. not have a good season. Of course, he didn't even start to practice until late August, and they got Clowney at the very end of August. So now you've got all that coming in there to a point where all the other defensive linemen combined coming into the season had 13 sacks, and none of them were really Leos, you know, that uh, position that they need that quick twitch guy. You know, Clowney did that, but he's still more of a five technique and a very good one, one of the top seven edge rushers in football. But now they have four options at the Leo position. They can take Bruce Irvin, move him from strong safety on the early downs to put his hand on the ground and rush. You know, you still have the ability to use Quan, uh, you know, and remember, Irvin has 52 sacks in his career, which is yeah. pretty amazing. Then you've got uh, Benson Mayoa, who has 20 career sacks. Then uh, you've got two good young guys in Daryl Taylor, their second round choice, and Alton Robinson, another draft choice. Uh, they think that LJ Collier and Rasheem Green can handle the five technique. You have Jaron Reed for the full season. They need to get one more run-stopping defensive tackle. But if they can get Clowney back, they're even that much better. Well, Pete and Russell win one more Super Bowl together, or at least one more? Yes, I think so. Okay. Uh, you know, and you, you kind of go, I mean, because uh, you, you think about this was not a great team last year, particularly no. with only 28 sacks and you know, ranking like, what, 26 or 27th in yards allowed and giving up 24 points a game. Yet, were it not for the fact that they lose their top three running backs right before the end of the season, you know, they have two guys suspended in Josh Gordon and Al Woods, they were going to be the number one seed. They ended up losing to Arizona on a home game in week 16 and should have beaten San Francisco to win the division. Uh, but then they get a, a non-call on Jacob Hollister in the end zone that would have given them a, one, a play at the one-yard line, and Marshawn Lynch would have taken it in as long as they didn't you know, try to throw the ball in the middle of the field to uh, – <laughs> Oh, uh, that's like a, a dig. Like a, that's a dig. Yeah, they weren't going to do that again. Oh, yeah, but, uh, yeah, but no, no honestly, <laughs> they have a chance. Yeah. So besides the 1.3 million Twitter followers you have at John Clayton NFL, please plug uh, whatever you want to how people can find you. You're, you're everywhere. Well, you can, yeah, well, you can find me, of course, at 710 ESPN Seattle, uh, the radio station. And, of course, you have the podcast, Schooled with the Professor, which, of course, is you, know, you can get on any of the uh, places where you catch the podcast. And then uh, Washington Post, WashingtonPost.com. You know, because, you know, do a lot of I'm a, I'm a columnist for them. So and then, of course, you know, you get to hear me, although not as much as I want to, but on, on serious radio. And hopefully if the sidelines are going to be open, maybe some Westwood ones. There you go. So now on a personal note, I want to thank you for doing this. I also I know you get tons of requests, so I always appreciate you doing my podcast. And I want to say this as a kid who grew up following the Seahawks and being able to read your articles in the newspaper and hear you on the radio for so many years. I was a huge fan of yours, and the best thing that came out of it was the fact out of my ESPN experience was working with you, one of my idols, and later I've actually been honored enough to call you a friend of mine. That's something I cherish on a daily basis, and I just wanted to tell you how much I appreciate you doing this, and I'm, I'm very grateful of being able to call you a friend, John. Yeah, and it's great to have your friendship, too, because you've been such a great friend to me through the years. It will always be great catching up with my friend John Clayton. He is great with the people he meets in public, and it's always great to see them do the double take when they realize it's him. Next, they want inside info on their team, and he gladly gives them a couple nuggets that they can share with their buddies, just to show how smart they are about the NFL. If you have an opinion about anything heard on this episode, reach out to us on Twitter at SQuarantinePod, Instagram at SelfQuarantinePod, 
And our company accounts on both those platforms is at Fushan Media. If you are a company that would like to be part of this podcast or would like Fushan Media to help design your own podcast, email me, ryan at fushanmedia.com. Finally, I'd like to finish with this. This Sunday is Father's Day. And just like I did on Mother's Day with my mom, I want to do the same for my dad, Galen. Happy Father's Day, Dad. I love you very much. Thanks for just being there when I need you. The more I've lived my life, the more I've realized that not everyone has a father who is there in their life and who cares for them. I am truly one of the lucky ones. And a happy Father's Day to all the dads out there listening. Hopefully, you're listening to this on Sunday as part of your Father's Day to enjoy all by yourself. Thanks for listening. And as always, stay safe.